But there's also a whole lot of people that just take uh, art classes or send their kid to like summer art camp with no expectation that that collage they do or that um, charcoal piece they do or that, you know, on plein air painting they do in art camp is going to like make them an artist. But why do we do that? Well, we hope that by painting outside with those messy watercolors in elementary school, you might, even if you don't become a painter, you might become someone who notices nature more. Or in working with charcoal, you're going to be more aware of texture. And and in making a collage, then juxtaposition might show up in whatever field you pursue. And you're going to understand how things sort of fit together a little bit better. I think what I'm talking about in Poetry Pauses is a lot like that art camp. It's a lot like saying, let's get messy with it a little bit. Let's get our hands in there so that it's it's everyone can find something to take away from it. copier a conversation about teaching my name is marcus luther and today i'm incredibly excited uh, to talk to our guest brett vogelsinger about his new book poetry pauses and his argument more broadly that poetry can be used in myriad ways within the classroom to elevate student learning uh, before we get started some just quick reminders about the show this is an independent listener supported podcast the goal of the show is to connect with passionate diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to folks working in the classroom as always, the show works from a place of gratitude for all the teachers out there, past, present, and future who understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. And if this is your first time listening, we welcome you. Love to hear from you on social media at The Broken Copier. And if you can subscribe to episodes and other writing at thebrokencopier.substack.com, we'd love for you to join our community. Uh, and welcome, Brett. Hi. Thanks for having me, Marcus. No, of course. Uh, are you? I don't. Are you a bell ringer teacher? Do you like bell ringers, or is some teachers that's not their jam? Uh, the poem becomes the bell ringer. After that. <laughs> Fair point. So I'm gonna go. We're gonna talk a lot about poetry, and you're gonna be preaching to the choir, who is me in this version. Uh, but I just want to go the more traditional bell ringer route, uh, just in honor of our podcast title. If you send a printing job to a copier, and then you get a notification that it's jammed and needs service contacted, are you the type of teacher who A, tries to fix it yourself, B, lets the office know about the need for service, or C, goes and looks for a different copier in the building and will deal with it later, potentially? <laughs> that I feel like C has a, a, a little subtext that says, let someone else deal with it. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think a lot of times if I'm right there, I'm, I'm the A teacher, I'll try to fix it. Um, but if I'm sending it from afar, I'm more likely to be the C teacher and say, okay, don't have time to deal with this right now. Okay. <laughs> I, I appreciate the honesty there. Uh, we try to lean into the cliche of the broken copier as much as possible. But uh, yes. just before we get into your book, and we're going to get into this book, talk to us just a little bit or talk to me a little bit about you. Like, who are you? Like, what is your current teaching position? And how'd you get there? What's your story? Sure. Um, so I've taught for 20 years, the first 10 years as an eighth grade English teacher and the second 10 years as a ninth grade English teacher, um, in a seven through nine building, the same building the whole time. Um, so I've, I've learned a lot from those years, but I'm also excited that next year I'm moving on to uh, a 10 through 12 building in our same district. So, um, I'm excited about those possibilities as well and getting to work with a whole different age group. Um, in terms of how I became a teacher, I, 
it's funny in ninth grade, um, you know, they did, I was in a seven through nine building as a student and they did sort of the, the ninth grade version of senior superlatives. And I was chosen by my peers to be most likely to become a teacher at a time when I had no aspirations to become a teacher. <laughs> so it's kind of like other people saw it um, before I did, but I, I really enjoy um, helping people and I enjoy being creative. And I think teaching gave me a path to um, enjoy both of those things in my career. But at the time I wanted to be an architect. So, Hey, things change a lot in high school, right? <laughs> they do, uh, but I'm really excited to talk with you today. And especially about this book. This is one of those books. I'll just begin by saying that I, I opened it up knowing that there would be lots of examples and resources and ideas. And after I finished, I opened up my tab for unit one in my planning guide for next year and just started brainstorming ideas directly from this book. So like already I have plans that are directly in response to reading this book. And that doesn't happen very often uh, when I'm reading all these education books. Sometimes they get into theoretical, which is great. And we love those conversations. But I'll just begin with the plug of this has been super helpful for me already. So my appreciation starts from there. The book is called Poetry, sorry, Poetry Pauses, Teaching with Poems to Elevate Student Writing in All Genres. The word in the title, though, I'm really curious about is pauses. Can you talk about the origin of the book? but also like the title itself, Poetry Pauses, and why you centered that so much. Right. So the the origin story of the book probably goes back a ways, but from the time I started teaching, I wanted to uh, use a poem of the day routine. Billy Collins had his Poetry 180 at the time, and a lot of teachers still know about that, use aspects of it in their teaching. But the first 10 years, I never really found a way to do it. And um, when I switched grade levels, I decided now's the time. Fast forward a few more years, and I started a blog uh, called Go Poems, in which I wrote about some of the, the tiny activities I was doing with these poems um, and invited other teachers to do the same. And that was a six-year project or sort of an annual blogging project for National Poetry Month. Um, that led to the book, although the book is not just a republication of the blog um, by any stretch. Uh, in terms of the word pause, I think teaching writing, I began to realize that the way I was taught writing, which was the writing process, and I had writing workshop built into my own experience um, to some degree as a, as a student, I realized that it was taught like you finish pre-writing and then it's time for drafting. And then after drafting, it's time for revision. It was very like, just follow this recipe and you'll be okay. And that's a useful recipe and a good thing. I was taught that way. However, um, real writers don't follow it that lockstep. And of course, the whole class isn't always at the same place at the same time. So I began to look at how we might interrupt the writing process um, without dragging it out and make it more productive so that our, our finished product writing, <clears throat> no matter what genre we're writing in, could be poetic. Because I think when people talk about writing they love, no matter what kind of writing they're talking about, they'll use the word poetic to describe it if the, if the language is beautiful. So that's where the pauses came from, finding ways to interrupt the writing process here and there and say, hey, let's look at what this poem is doing. And how can that help us with our essay or our story or whatever we're writing? Yeah. Can you help me visualize, like, what do these poetry pauses look like in your classroom? I know that they there's yeah. a range of them and they use them for different ways that we'll get into. But if I'm observing your classroom or I'm studying your classroom, when you bring in a poetry pause, what do, is that the same place in the class each day? Is, is it a really built-in system or is it just that, you know, in some way it's going to happen? 
Right. Yeah. And most most days um, I begin class with the poem of the day. So it's right at the beginning. Um, and some days that's just a five minute thing because poems can be read really quickly. And I might say, hey, let's look at how the um, the writer or the, uh, the poet uses a turn here and, t- and takes us from talking about one aspect of this to another or changes the tone. And let's look for that turn in the poem. Are we doing that in our writing project right now? And just quickly carry it over. Like it, that's a quick discussion in class. Other times it becomes the whole class period, right? You could use the poem um, and some of the pauses in the book are described that way. Um, where you could use the poem to pause, use it as a mentor text, write like that poem, and then say, okay, now that we've written that change of tone in a poem, how can we take that back to your story and have a turning point that really sings to the, to the reader? And, and so it, it can be very, very short, uh, and it can be very long. Most of mine are short. And then the, the longer ones are the ones that I'm really digging into a writing lesson with it. Yeah, I have I have all sorts of questions about specific strategies in here, but I want to kind of let you take the lead on which part of the book you want to uh, center in this conversation. You actually use the phrase uh, zoom, zooming in at one point in the book. Uh, I love this pat, this concept of like, even in a poem, it'll zoom in on the details. Uh I'm just curious, can you zoom in for us and for listeners, what's a part of this book that you feel really passionately about, like a section or a strategy that you think teachers, if they were going to begin by saying, this will help my classroom be better, especially for English teachers, where would you point them to first? So if I zoom in on chapter five, I think this one reflects a lot of what I've learned the more I listen to poets. So chapter five is about poetry pauses for writing informative and research pieces. And I think one of the big um, themes I hear when, when poets speak about their own work is that a ton of research goes into writing uh, poetry. And I didn't realize that research into the topics they're writing about it. You know, they, they might write a, a poem that's 17 lines long, but uh, they spend a lot of reading time to be able to write that well and to pick just the right words. So there's on, on page 113 in the book, there's even a, um, an example of how found poetry can help a student to hone uh, their research skills. So when you're writing a, a piece with students and they're using research, a lot of times they have a hard time whittling down, like, I get a sense that this article could help me with the point I'm trying to make, but the whole thing's pretty good and sounds professional. I don't know what pieces I can use. So the example on page 113 takes uh, takes like a little excerpt from a New York Times article, such as a student might find in their research and says, hey, You can just copy and paste this part of the article over into a Word document and start breaking it down into lines, making it look like a poem, which is really what found poetry is. And we've we've probably done found poetry, but it's often kind of a throwaway, like last day before a long weekend kind of thing. And here I'm saying, no, it doesn't have to be that. Because when we break something that's not a poem into lines that looks like a poem, suddenly we're able to see it differently. And we can begin to ascertain, oh, there's my key, my key heart of what I'm writing about. That's the part I need to lift a quote. The rest of this I can paraphrase. Or, oh, wow, in the example I use here, a student might notice, oh, they're using a list for parallel structure or or an aphora maybe in in this article. And that wouldn't have jumped out at me just reading it, but I I like and I want to quote that piece. So this can be done quickly, especially with computers. Um, It uses something teachers may have already tried, like a found poem, but shows you how you can take that um, writing strategy and we don't use just found poetry just to admire writing. We can use it to find the crux of, of uh, the information we want to include in our research. Yeah. The theme that I sense with 
this book is very much that you are taking strategies that I've heard before and encountered in some cases, some of them are new, but in this one, found poems, as you note, are things that have been used, but you're applying it with such intentionality, like this is going to be useful for the next step. And I think that's the pattern across this book that poetry isn't just a pause for the importance of the poem itself, which you and I both think is you know valuable in its own right, but it can help in so other so many other ways, which is what I find this book to be so valuable about. Uh, can you just talk about, I mean, we could go on and on about this. There are hundreds of poems in this book and the, the amount of resources and ideas and places to go look, not just the lists of poems, but also sources where you get poems and where other teachers could get poems uh, for their own classrooms. What's one poem that you just really love to bring into the classroom with students? So in the 10 years that I've been doing Poem of the Day, I always use the poem um, Coming Home at Twilight Late Summer by Jane Kenyon. And it's mentioned in the book. Um, I don't think it's one that's reprinted in the book. Um, but I should mention every, every poem mentioned in the book that's available online, you can get from the online uh, resources. In other words, link libraries to all of these. But what I love about this poem is it, it is what the title says, coming home at late at twilight and late summer. And it's, it's a beautiful description. And the first thing you can notice is like the imagery of late summer, which is often when we're starting school too. Well, always when we're starting school. So they can immediately relate to it. It's understandable on the first read, but then you can dig and find more and more and begin to demonstrate how, hey, this little word choice over here, like when it compares the gravel that flies up from the tires, like sparks from a fire, or their feet are making black holes in the grass. Like what are some what are some connotations of that, of, of the sparks of a fire, the, especially in late summer, or um, the black holes in the grass? And then they go and pick fruit from a tree and like, hmm, where have we heard that image before? Could she be playing with some like Garden of Eden stuff here? Um, why is she so grateful? The last word, the last uh, line of uh, last word in the poem is grateful to be arriving home. How long have they been gone? There's some cool clues in the poem. So you can immediately start working with like, inference, allusion, diction, and we're not naming any of it, but we're just demonstrating to students how you can engage curious uh, with your curiosity in approaching a poem. And, and it's not a poem that's naturally like a poem teenagers would find to be like, wow, what a poem. But it's a great example of how a teacher can bring uh, and demonstrate curiosity in approaching a poem and just show, hey, there's, there's corners to explore here. We don't need firm answers always but we can always find one more thing to sort of hold up to the light and examine. I also really ap appreciate how you've made this work at uh, the middle grades level so consistently and expansively in a place that, you know, I mean, even at the high school level, I know that there's a lot of times gaps in our curricula that mm. poetry isn't given the platform that it deserves. Uh, and I know that's something that I've struggled with and I want to keep getting better at. And I feel like in recent years, I've leaned into it more and more, but there's always more leaning to be had. And that's what this book helps with. Though one of the things I have observed in my own practices and from other teachers in English and ELA classrooms is I feel like a lot of teachers are reluctant to teach poetry. And like, that's something that wasn't really centered in our own experience potentially, or our own development and support in becoming teachers. And then we see this idea of, oh, there's all these great poems. How do we break through that wall though? I mean, you're, you're trying to say, here are all these incredible resources and strategies and motivations to bring poetry into the classroom. What can you do or what are some ideas you have 
if a teacher is reading this and they haven't taught poetry before or aren't confident in teaching poetry, what support would you offer them in terms of the teaching of the poem itself? Yeah, I would, re- I would remind them that um, I don't even know if I'd use the word teaching the poem. I think like exploring or um, uh, and, and maybe just enjoying the poem to start with is, is a good starting point. A lot of teachers, I think, have limited experience as uh, readers of poetry for like just to read it for the joy of it. Um, and they, they probably have pretty, uh, pretty good experience in explication of a poem and, and sort of taking it apart, that sort of deeper analysis. And I actually, I like, bo- I like both of those. I like reading it just to read it and enjoy it. And I like explication. But what I'm talking about in the book is really something in the middle, which can make it more approachable for teachers as well. Because there's going to be a lot of students and, and maybe even some English teachers who don't like that deep analysis where everything has another meaning. And, you know, what, what's, what's the poet trying to say? You know, I think Billy Collins makes a joke about that in his introduction for poetry, um, introduction to poetry. But I think that uh, we need to remember that a lot of students are going to be sort of rolling their eyes at that pretty quickly. And we need to bring in a variety of, of voices and poems uh, to our own experience first. So I feel like I'm sidestepping your question and talking about students. Let me get back to teachers. For a teacher who doesn't really like teaching poetry, I would say, let's find some newer poets. Let's go and follow some of the Instagram accounts I mentioned on in there or some of the um, follow Nikita Gill, the poet on, on Twitter, um, and, and see if you can find just one that kind of pulls at your heart because they're going to share contemporary poems from around the world uh, that are, are understandable on one read and get better on the second read. That's what we're going for. And too often, teachers themselves have experienced only those poems that require two or three reads to really get much of anything out of them. And that's not what we're talking about when we, you know, poetry is a vast genre. So don't only consider poems like that. I appreciate that. And that's something in my own practice this most recent year, the essay that students wrote on King Lear in my AP literature course, I asked them this year, the first draft was only focusing on a single or multiple scenes in the play. They got feedback and then they had to bring in a list of 25 contemporary poems, one of their their choosing that are poems like you've mentioned, Nikita Gill, poems that you can read and really pull something away meaningfully on first read. And you don't have to do the digging that you might have to with other poems, uh, especially in an AP literature course. But the the results when students put King Lear and unlocked it with a Nikita mm-hmm. Gill poem, or the, it was it was one of the coolest things I've seen from student writing, and the quality of writing really was unlocked. And that was one of the reasons that this book spoke to me is that I've seen it happen in my own classroom yeah. that the poem by itself can be a valuable experience, but it also has this unlocking mechanism for student thinking and writing that I really wish I could go back in time and, and lean on more often. And I, I appreciate that you're pushing that to happen in more classrooms around uh, the country and sharing this book. Uh, is there, a, I'm curious now, we, we can nerd out on poems a little bit. <laughs> is there a poem that you really love that you don't teach or you don't think is great, like in terms of the value in the classroom? Um, I wouldn't, I think this has value in the classroom, but I don't teach it per se. So I'd say um, one of my all time favorite poems, partially because I was, you can look it up on YouTube. Um, and, and I was there in the audience at the Dodge Poetry Festival when he read this. So it has special meaning because I, I was there. Um, it's called Revenge by Taha Muhammad Ali. 
And his, uh, he reads it the first time um, in Arabic on the video when you look it up on YouTube. And I remember being in the audience, and everyone's kind of like politely clapping because it's the original language. And we're like, we don't know what he's saying. And so we're, we're, we give him some applause and, and we're thankful that he read us his poem. But then Peter Cole reads it in, in the English translation. And the, the feeling that that poem had on a crowd, um, you know, the, the first line is something like, uh, if I could meet in a duel, the man who killed my father. And, and so the, the feeling that it had, oh, that's what this poem's about. And then the title, Revenge, and we're like, where is this going? And it kind of takes some surprising twists along the way. Uh, I feel like that just had such a raw, it was a raw experience hearing what a poem meant when we heard it in our own language, uh, the audience. And I, I bring that poem to my students to share it only for that. Let's just enjoy this one. And also let's marvel at the fact that those sounds that don't mean anything to you if you don't speak Arabic have such a deep meaning when you hear them translated into your own language. And like how much more literature in the world is like that from around the world? Because I, I'll say that too, Marcus, the one, the one thing I found is by using Poem of the Day or using poetry more often, it absolutely affords more opportunity to read things from every continent and um, from every century. Uh, because they're short and you can dip in and dip out and, and you're getting a greater variety in your classroom too, like like that one. For sure. And now I'm like, I'm like just like with this book, there's this growing list and it's summer. So I have the time for this. So if I need to explore this, read this, learn this, which I love. This is, this is my world. And like I said, you're speaking to the choir uh, in this conversation. You're about to make a transition yourself into an AP literature classroom, which of course that that's one of the classes I teach. And I'm curious because that is a classroom and a course that's going to ask of you to lean into the more refined, analyze the elements and techniques in this essay, in this very, you know, box-like format to prepare for the, the exam that affords college credit. And we won't go into that whole world in terms of the what AP is, et cetera. But I'm just curious how you're going to take this approach with Poetry Pauses into a course that really doesn't want you to pause at times, that wants you to actually go into the weeds of the poem itself. And for some students, that can be a sapping out of the very joy that you're trying to bring in. So how are you going to, I know this is a new development for you and your career. How are you going to balance all those things? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, it's um, it's fine to admit what you don't know, and I I think I'll have the better answer for that at the end of this year. Um, I do I do think I have two determinations though. One, I I know I will still enjoy the going into the weeds of the poems. Like I can nerd out about that stuff, and and have always been able to. So, I'm I'm hoping that students who are taking that course uh, will be able to as well. So I'm I'm hoping to find that, but I haven't actually done it yet. So we'll see. So I want to I want to lean into that and enjoy it, and and that will be obviously the poem will be the center of the lesson. Maybe over a couple of days, it might not be just one day. But then on the other hand, I am determined to make sure I bring some of that uh, lighter weight joy of reading poetry in as well. Uh, I'll be teaching in ninety minute blocks or eighty three minute blocks, I think, for three uh, marking periods, and so the length of the class period I think will, will afford me time to do that. And what it will also give is what you just described earlier the chance to juxtapose a short, quicker read that might be easier to understand on the first read with something deeper and more, uh, that, we're, that we're studying together so that we can still have that, you know, how sad it would be, you're right, to, to sap the joy of, of reading away from kids who are our top readers in the high school. 
So I don't want to do that. And I'm hoping that that being able to include some of those uh, smaller poetry pauses as as paired texts can be can be a way of of maintaining that for me. I'll be teaching other courses too, so I'm still going to yeah. do the poem of the day in there. <laughs> Yeah. And I think poem of the day can work very easily in every yeah. level of class. Like I read this text through different lens. I teach a sophomore level English course and it would work there, but also work in AP literature very readily, especially with the block schedule. So I was just, I know it's going to be a new context for you. And I think that's yeah. exciting. I think as teachers, sometimes the newness is intimidating, but with support, it can be a really cool thing for our career. So let's get to this question though. This whole book is very much designed of pause and use this for this. And I think you're making the case that the utility of these poems in a classroom, which is an important case that needs to be made. It's pushed my thinking and reading it. And I'm grateful for that. Does it in some way take away from the value of the poem itself? Not that you're not valuing it because you're saying these poems have all this utility to help students as you know in their research in their techniques of writing in their opening up to their narratives but is there something that's lost in saying i'm going to use this poem as a means to an end as opposed to an end itself yeah i think that's such a great question and and it actually came up in some of the first feedback i got from uh, my publisher takes rough drafts and sends them to teachers in the field who I don't know and says, you know, give give some feedback to this guy and say, what do you think? And that was one of the questions that came up. Um, I think it's a, I'm going to compare it to another kind of art or, or visual art. Right. So. We sometimes love going to an art museum and just admiring and sort of soaking it all in and taking a long time to stare at it and think about it with a friend and talk about it. Um, and that's a great, that's a great way humans interact with art. And in AP, I anticipate interacting that way with poetry quite a bit. Um, we can also uh, create something or aspire to be an artist who ends up in a museum someday, right? Where we're studying uh, the, the, media to such a degree that we want to master it and we want to really become like a name in the art world. But there's also a whole lot of people that just take uh, art classes or send their kid to like summer art camp with no expectation that that collage they do or that um, charcoal piece they do or that, you know, on plein air painting they do in art camp is going to like make them an artist. But why do we do that? Well, we hope that uh, by painting outside, with those messy watercolors in elementary school, you might, even if you don't become a painter, you might become someone who notices nature more. Or in working with charcoal, you're going to be more aware of texture. And and in um, uh, making a collage, then juxtaposition might show up in whatever field you pursue. And you're going to understand how things sort of fit together a little bit better. I think what I'm talking about in Poetry Pauses is a lot like that art camp. It's a lot like saying, Let's get messy with it a little bit. Let's get our hands in there so that it's it's everyone can find something to take away from it, not just the students who plan to be English majors, uh, who are few and far between anymore anyway. So like, let's make sure that we're we're using poetry in all those different ways. There are some beautiful and amazing books that I own about how to write beautiful and amazing poems with students. Um, there's also wonderful books about how to to analyze poetry to the nth degree. But this this one's different, and it's in the middle, and it's more like that art camp. Let's let's make sure everybody gets their hands in the box somewhere. And in terms of honoring the actual poems by sharing them this way, I mean, the alternate is to just share a whole lot less poetry, 
And then how are we honoring it then if it's not even being put in front of students? So that's where I sort of see this book as falling and how it maybe is different than other books about teaching poetry that might be on your shelf. Another thing I'm thinking with this is the question of what do you find valuable as a resource to continue pushing yourself? I mean, you have now at this point, this exhaustive body of examples and poetry at your hands and techniques, and you're sharing that with the world with this book. How do you keep pushing yourself? Where's an area where you want to keep growing in terms of learning more about different poets? Yeah. What's a tool or a resource? I know you've listed some in this book. If you're another teacher listening to this and you're saying, I want to learn more about poetry and have different uh, resources, where would you direct them or where are you trying to push yourself to keep growing? Yeah, one resource that I mentioned in the book is the Poem a Day email from poets.org. And um, oftentimes they'll have uh, a poet that selects all the poems for a month that you're getting in your inbox. But underneath each one will be a little paragraph about the poem and the poet. So you can just learn a lot on a daily basis that way and get your mind in that sort of poem a day mindset just for yourself as a reader and as a learner. So I, I continue to learn from that uh, resource. I don't open the email every day, but most days. <laughs> and I'm able to, to keep uh, learning that way. I think changing grades which I'm, I wanted to do this year, is another way to just keep pushing yourself through um, throughout your career. I, I want to reiterate that I, I wanted to, as a brand new teacher, first year, do Palma Day, and I didn't really have the nerve to do it. And then I thought, oh, I'll get to it next year, next year, next year. It wasn't until I changed grades that I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm 10 years in. I've got the experience. Let's do this that I've always wanted to do. And then, I mean, so much discovery came in that 10-year period of of. And now I'm ready to change grades again. And so I don't even know everything that I'll learn in the coming 10 years. But I would say looking and looking to invite change like that. I'm also someone who wants to be a classroom teacher long term. I don't I don't aspire to be a principal. I don't aspire to be, you know, curriculum director, that kind of stuff. So I think it's important then to change up uh, something, whether it's a routine um, like Palm of the Day or a grade level. Change is good. I agree. And you're talking to someone who's lockstep with you of wanting to be in the classroom to the finish line. Uh, Let's see if we can make it. <laughs> I, I know. I was going to say like, that is, a, that is an arduous thing to consider uh, these days, especially. So to follow up though, something you said that I was thinking about was you said that you wanted to do this routine earlier in your career and didn't. And then it was more successful later in your career with your experience, which we've all, if we're at this stage, I mean, you're just finished year 11 myself. Yeah, it's easier to implement a system in year 11 than year one. What if you're a newer teacher listening to this and you read this book and Brett, Brett himself said that that early on wasn't necessarily ready for it or confident enough to do it. What would be your advice to that newer teacher listening to this conversation? I, I mean, if if we're talking about daily poetry, and I want to I want to also emphasize, I don't think you need to do poem of the day for ideas in this book to work. So yeah. people who yeah. would never see themselves doing that could still find a home in this book, I think. But I also didn't have a book to guide me or or all the online resources linked and things like that, and that would be very very helpful if I was a newer teacher in this book. But I think more important than that is find your signature thing, like, and and decide at the start of a new. I mean, if you're listening to this over the summer. What, what is, if you don't have a signature thing, I know I had a teacher, it was like quote of the day, a math teacher in my school or, or, um, you know, my, another teacher had the Friday 
one of my son's teachers had like something like a, a joke for every Friday or like just find your little signature thing because that really does uh, become central to your teaching. You will find that all the things you need to teach will start connecting to that little signature thing you do. And that's what I don't think I anticipated. I really just wanted to share the poems. I didn't really think about all the ways it could connect. I, I didn't couldn't foresee all the ways I would use it to help with writing, like I talk about in the book. So that will happen with whatever your signature thing is. And if it's your thing, you're going to make it special and love it. And the kids will be drawn to to uh, your class because of it. So I think that's important to do for a newer teacher. I, as someone who has the, the octopus thing I've leaned into in my classroom, yeah. even the most random of things uh, can end up being very interconnected. Uh, I'd also add in my own kind of carry on advice is that never sacrificing that student lens. And I think mm -hmm. at times in the teacher world, that's easy to do because we're just so busy and life takes over. But one thing I've realized uh, during the, when the pandemic began back in March, 2020, I signed up for uh, a course at the university of Pennsylvania modpo. Uh, and it's this online massive course that you can just kind of take at your own pace virtually and I was just saying, I want to be back in the student seat and I want to watch a professor talk about poetry with this small yeah. group of uh, students. And there were like, I was writing essays, I was doing my feedback and I knew I was going into this new teaching experience with uh, AP literature, going to a new school. And I just got into student world for about a month. I still have my journal with all the poems annotated, the essays. Yeah. And, and it was just, and I think, yeah, specifically with our conversation about poetry, it's applicable but more broadly, when you have time, and I know there's never enough time in this work, if you can put on the student lens and just go learn again about whatever is your thing or whatever area, like summer's great for that often. But in general, I think it's really easy unintentionally to forfeit that student yeah. lens. And that is a disservice to our own teaching then uh, in full circle. I know we learn from students all the time. But it's not the same thing from the position of power that is a teacher. It's very different when you just sit as a student and learn. And we don't get the time and space to do that too often. But when you can, I think it's really helpful. Yeah, I love I love that. That could and in terms of time, that could be um, manifest in the movies you choose, or whether you can use audiobooks to help you in like dead you know, downtime. You can you can work it in. You can work it in, and you're right. It's essential. Keep your joy. I do want to step back a little bit more broadly before we kind of wrap things up with uh, you talking a little bit more about the book and where to get it and where to experience it. What right now in this moment, a conversation Jim and I have often, what's hardest for you as a teacher? You're someone which we very much value who wants to go the full marathon in the classroom. What's hard for you right now, even in this moment that you are getting deserved celebration for this really cool achievement that is this book? I think all of us feel the effects of living in such a divided time. And, and uh, even when that doesn't directly affect our work with students, and it often doesn't, um, I find that it, it's, it's uh, unsettling and that, that can certainly be background noise to our work. Um, so that I think is, is something everybody's facing. Um, and, and the effect, it's funny, I remember as a new teacher hearing veteran teachers talk about this, but the whole like one more thing effect, like, and then add this and then add that and then add the other thing. And like you're juggling, you know, you think you're juggling. 20 things and here's number 21. Um, I think that that is fatiguing as well. And and one thing I'm almost thinking about and want to write about somewhere down the line is, is the art of subtraction and making sure we're, we're, you know, no one ever tells you to subtract anything. 
So how do you as an experienced teacher then decide what you need to subtract so that you can make the stuff that's being added work? I think that's another thing that can can threaten our joy, but also um, we could, could work on. Just as a, a preview, do you have something you've subtracted in your practice in recent years that's made it more sustainable? Um, yeah, I think that being able to subtract, uh, going for depth rather than breadth is something that's funny. As, as I was getting ready to teach AP, that's advice I'm getting from AP teachers around the country too. Um, being okay with the fact that like, hey, we don't have to have this checklist of my curriculum doesn't even say I have to have X number, all these books that I've covered. Um, but have I covered them well? And are they actually going to take something away they can learn and use? So subtracting the number of, of things I've covered uh, post-pandemic, that's difficult because I remember the, the before days when I felt like I effectively covered more. But it's not a bad thing to step back and say, no, we're covering it better. And we're, um, we're not just covering it anymore. We're, we're trying to make sure that the, the learning is really rich. So I think that's one area is saying, hey, the number of books we study as a class does not matter as much. Can I engage them in reading? Can I get them choosing their own? All these these shifts that we're making. So I think that's one thing, trying to not be obsessed over the numbers. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. And a question we tend to end with is, who's a teacher in your own path into the classroom uh, that made a positive impact on you? We like to uh, give the love out to the teachers who've made impact to ourselves as educators. Who's someone who impacted you and what do you appreciate about them? So, um, and there's so many, but, um, one that I mentioned in the, in the dedication of the book, uh, is, is Candace Brobst, who was my teacher at, uh, in high school, who I'd had for several creative writing classes. I think she, she fostered my love of writing, of being creative, which helped me be a better teacher. Um, she also showed me how teachers could relate to students in a more, she was a younger teacher at the time. And so like, she sort of, we were older high school kids. So being able to relate to students um, and treat them like young adults was something I think I learned from her subconsciously. I didn't know it at the time. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, I've been able to be back in touch with her with this book and she has a copy and being able to share that back and give back a gift uh, to her that she's given to me is really a, a, a powerful uh, powerful thing that I've enjoyed as well. So I'll give her my shout out today. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess my only other question is where would you point people listening to this podcast if they want to get their hands on this book, if they want to explore these resources, what guidance would you give them? Yeah. So um, if you go to corwin.com, you can often find the best price on the book <laughs> right from the publisher, but you'll also find all the freebies. Like you could read the introduction for free and you can find some of the, uh, uh, online sources and link libraries. So Corwin.com is a great place to go for that. But it's sold anywhere books are sold, like Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can buy online there too. Um, and your local bookseller can can often request it. I know the one right around the corner from me uh, can do that. So yeah, it's available anywhere you, you buy your books. I just want to say I appreciate uh, this book because again, I, I have this document pulled up of my unit one brainstorming on my screen and like there's poems and strategies from this book already that are going to be moving into my classroom in the fall. So I think the biggest recommendation I can give is utility. Like as a teacher who doesn't ever have enough time, uh, the ability to read something and instantly find meaning in how it can shape my own classroom is something I'm really grateful for. Grateful for this conversation uh, because talking English and poetry with another English teacher is 
my jam and I uh, I'm sure we could go on and on with different strategies and potentially stay connected with your experience with AP literature uh, and the, the world ahead of you with that. But uh, do you have any like final thoughts or advice or just things on your mind right now? Teachers are listening to this in the summer. Uh, it's been a year. It's always, we always say that, but again, it's been a year. What is the kind of final words or message you'd like to leave with them listening to this podcast? Um, go back to that word, pause, <laughs> Re- refresh yourself. Cause if you don't, um, find some things that truly refresh you over the summer and you come back uh, without that in, in August or September, when you start, it's really hard. So yeah, take some time to pause. I think poetry can be that for you. So find, become a reader of poetry and, and make some pauses for it yourself. But if it's not that for you, find something else to pause with and, and revitalize. Okay. The book is Poetry Pauses, Teaching with Poems to Elevate Student Writing in All Genres. Uh, Brett, thanks for being with us today and have a great rest of your summer and all the pausing that will uh, be ahead of you. The Broken Copier is an independent, listener-supported podcast for teachers. The show is written and hosted by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Mares. I do editing and sound design for the show as well. Thanks to Casey Roberts, a blues musician born and raised in the Mississippi Delta for writing and supplying original intro music. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher currently based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available now on Spotify. You can stream his music under the name Uncivilized. Fun fact about the album, it includes vignettes from a single called Rain Stomp, which was originally written to support Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Network for Super Tuesday in 2020. Check out all his work at guitaruncivilized.com and uncivilizedtom.com, where you can sign up for guitar lessons on Zoom, just like I do. Links are in the show notes. Thanks very much to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of social justice and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching and learning at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.